Good afternoon. I have just accepted Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. Let me pay tribute to my... On September 6th, Liz Truss, Britain's new Prime Minister, was asked to form a government by Queen Elizabeth in what would be her final official engagement before her sad passing two days later. The new Prime Minister's intray is stacked with urgent matters, both domestic and foreign. And as the UK begins a new chapter, this week we're asking, what's the state of Britain's position in the Middle East and North Africa? My name's Hugo Goodridge. Welcome to the New Arab Voice. We sat down with Christopher Phillips. I'm Professor of International Relations at Queen Mary University of London. I started by asking him, what's the current state of UK engagement in the region and what's the UK doing well and where is it failing? Well, the UK's current engagement is not a great deal in the Middle East, to be honest. In in contrast to recent decades when the Middle East was actually a very important uh, region that the UK engaged in, particularly militarily when you think about things like uh, the invasion of Iraq or more recently the campaign against ISIS. Uh, The UK is not really prioritising the Middle East in the same way as as it once did. This is partly a reflection of its own domestic politics. You know, it has been distracted from most foreign policy aside from Brexit and uh, its relations with the European Union as a consequence of its um, uh, decision to leave the EU and related, as we know, uh, instability at home. Uh, But also it's partly to do with a shift in, I suppose, the, the international relations of the Middle East in that it is less of a priority area for Western countries in general. Like, you know, the, the UK follows the US's lead uh, in a lot of areas when it comes to the Middle East. The US, first under Trump and, and continuing under Biden, is not as interested in the Middle East as it once was. And so as a consequence, Britain is, is also not really prioritising that, that region. So the brief answer uh, is that for the last couple of years, under both, I think, Johnson and, and probably May as well, uh, and who knows, trust us, a few days in, uh, the, the Middle East is just not, not the same priority it once was. There is some engagement. That's not to say it's completely off the agenda, but it's just not to the same extent that it was. In terms of what the, the UK is doing well in the Middle East, I think it depends on, on, on what you think it's trying to get out of the region. Since Brexit, there's been a lot of focus on trade diplomacy and the importance of signing new trade agreements and pursuing a kind of trade-based foreign policy. And in that regard, the UK is doing okay. It's certainly engaging as much, if not more, with the Gulf states um, and Israel than it did prior to Brexit. Uh, And and that is very much a a trade-driven relationship. um, And it's trying to secure stronger uh, relations with both Israel and the Gulf in in that regard. A little bit earlier, uh, a few years ago, we could argue that the military campaign against ISIS was successful. Uh, ISIS was defeated and and Britain played a a role in operations in both Iraq and and Syria. 
you make the counter argument, of course, that obviously British policy with regard to invading Iraq played a role in the rise of ISIS in the first place. So, you know, but that said, you know, it, it, it was successful in containing and, and ultimately contributing to the destruction of, of ISIS and its so-called caliphate. In terms of areas that it's not doing as well, again, that goes down to your perspective, you know, that, that there are lots of different viewpoints as to what the UK should be doing in the Middle East. Those who believe that uh, human rights uh, and democracy promotion should be at the centre of a, a, a values-based foreign policy, which is something that various British leaders have talked about at different times in the past. They would say, well, actually, the UK is not doing very well in this regard, given that it, it has very close relations, increasingly close relations with major violators of human rights, uh, such as the Gulf states, and seems to be saying nothing about it or, or doing much to change that. Uh, those people that feel very strongly about the Israel-Palestine issue would argue that, again, the UK is not doing as well as it could do, uh, whereas once the UK was a firm advocate of the two-state solution, you think about Tony Blair's diplomacy, uh, and then subsequent post after his uh, prime ministership became obviously the, the special envoy um, to Israel-Palestine, that seems to have completely fallen off the agenda for the UK. Uh, it doesn't really talk a great deal about Palestinian rights anymore, the two-state solution. It's getting ever closer to Israel uh, and their suggestions that it will actually abandon former positions on Israel-Palestine, such as uh, moving the British embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, for example. Um, so, uh, yeah, from that perspective, although those people that, that want to see more activism on Israel-Palestine, the, the UK is, is not doing as well. The UK has been involved in the Middle East, I mean, for over 100 years now, since the fall of the Ottoman Empire. During that time period, have we ever had a good position in the Middle East? Uh, and then more fundamentally, what is a good position for the UK in the region? I mean, it's an interesting way you phrase it, involved in the, in, in the region since uh, the collapse of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, actively precipitated the collapse and redrawing of the Middle East after the, uh, the fall of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, Britain was the most important external player uh, when the Ottoman Empire collapsed and is responsible historically for the shape of the modern Middle East, you know, for good or ill. Right? It's a very important historical background that it has. And I, I think that that's something that, that shouldn't be glossed over. I know there's a lot of discussion in the UK, in UK popular culture at the moment and political culture about the legacies of empire, whether it was good or bad. I think it's something that we, whether we think it's a good or a bad thing, we, we shouldn't you know, pretend that it didn't happen. And I think when looking at a region like the Middle East, it, it's very crucial, really, to, to recognise not only that the UK had played an important role, but also that, you know, the populations in these countries are taught that Britain played an important role and often played a negative role. Um, and so there will be people governments, leaders, populations that have a very negative view of Britain as a consequence of its role, whether it be the creation of Israel, whether it be the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the, the partition of the Arab lands uh, into separate states rather than a united United state, the, the betrayal of the uh, Sharif of Mecca after the, the revolt against the Ottomans, the installation of uh, what were seen as puppet monarchs in Iraq and Jordan, against the, the the will of many of the populations that live there. Like these are important legacies uh, that, that shouldn't just be kind of glossed over. But that said, 
whether the UK has had a good policy or good experience, it's, it's difficult to tell. I mean, again, it goes back to what I said before, which is it, it depends what you're looking for uh, and, 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 and very much your worldview. You know, if you're someone that feels very strongly about particular issues like democracy promotion or human rights, then it's difficult to say that the UK has ever had a successful policy in the region. It has been very close to numerous governments that have had very poor human rights records that the UK has done very little to try to change and has sometimes actively endorsed. You know, we talk about things like democracy promotion. Historically, you have episodes like the UK backing the coup in Iran against Mossadegh in 1953, which overthrew a democratically elected government and reinstalled a, an autocratic regime that, that Britain supported. Uh, even more recently, obviously, you've got the overthrow of Saddam Hussein in 2003, who was autocratic, but uh, was not replaced by the pluralist democracy that Britain promised, but rather has been replaced by a, a, an oligarchic sectarian elected system, which uh, yeah, is having a lot of problems as well. So again, if you look through those lenses, the U- UK hasn't done especially well. I suppose if you look through a trade lens, you could argue that the UK has done all right. You know, it, it enjoys um, strong trade with different parts of the Middle East and has done for a long time. You know, you go back to you know, the, the defence deals that it signed with Saudi Arabia in the 1980s, which was you know, a real coup for British uh, arms manufacturers at the time. You think about uh, its close economic relationship in, in terms of arms suppliers with states like the UAE. You think about uh, the, the the service contractors that are working in the United Arab Emirates, in Dubai in particular. Uh, you think about the tech exchange that's going on with Israel. These are all positive signs that you know the Department of Trade and Industry would make a very big point of and saying, actually, you know, this is something we're doing well. The counter argument, of course, is that is that enough? Is that all that Britain should aspire to be internationally? I suppose a relationship for hire that can be sold to uh, the highest bidder or sold to all manner of different governments, um, provided they provide funds or investment in the UK economy. Uh, if you think that is a priority, then you can you can make a case that the UK is doing okay on that. I think I, for one, would argue that that's a, a very narrow perspective and i think that the united kingdom government should probably aspire to a little bit more than that and when you look beyond that are the other areas that in recent years the uk has done not so well at that the ledger is very much more in the not not doing as well side of things you you think about again the legacy of the invasion of iraq the the position on syria which arguably neither stopped the civil war but actually actively contributed to it by you know, backing uh, a rebel side that then wasn't sufficiently supported to actually overthrow the government of Bashar al-Assad. You look at the position in Egypt, again, when there was a, a military coup in 2013, the UK government said very little and quickly re-established relations with the autocratic government that overthrew the democratically elected government. Uh, this A similar thing is happening in Tunisia today. You know, there's been a coup against the elected government there by the president. Britain has not made much of this it has not cut ties the new autocratic regime there so it's not exactly sort of playing up to those kind of democratic credentials that it's spoken about in the past so you know as as i say um, it does depend on your perspective uh, and and what you think is the most important feature of british or most important priority rather for britain in the middle east Um, but 
I think in most areas you could say uh, historically and recently, the UK has not really been that successful. So, I mean, there are a lot of different aspects to the UK's involvement in the Middle East. What can the region offer the UK? And you know, does the UK actually need to be involved in the Middle East? Or can it just avoid it in total? That's a really interesting question. And I actually think that's a question that policymakers should probably ask themselves. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think that they should completely disengage from any region of the world. I think that if, if Britain aspires to, you know, being some kind of global player, Certainly not in the kind of you know scale it was during the days of empire or anything like that. But you know, it, as a permanent member of the UN Security Council, Britain has long aspired to be involved in, in most global theatres. And so, it, you know, with that in mind, it shouldn't disengage from any of those. But of course, there is always a question of priority. And I think it is a legitimate question to say, well, whilst we don't want to disengage with, with the Middle East, perhaps we shouldn't put too many eggs in that basket at the moment, given given that the way that the glo- geopolitical situation is changing, the Middle East is becoming less important than it once was. You know, focuses are shifting to East Asia, to Eastern Europe, of course, with the war in Ukraine and Russia and the situation with Russia there. It is a legitimate question to say, well, perhaps it, you know, in these you know tightened times, fewer resources should go into the Middle East than perhaps they once did. That said, like I say, I, I still think there, there, are, there is some value to be had uh, for engaging with the Middle East. Myself and my colleague, Mike Stevens, co-edited a book called uh, What Next for Britain in the Middle East that was published last year. And in it, we, we basically said, look, you know, Brit- British engagement in the Middle East normally falls within one of three pillars, security, trade or values. Values is always the, 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 the third uh, priority. It's always the least important. It's the one that's, that's most usually compromised in favour of the other two. As I said before, at the moment, Britain doesn't seem to be really prioritising values. It doesn't really seem to be emphasising democracy promotion or human rights. That's not to say it should ignore the issue, but it seems to have fallen down the, the priority list. It does seem to be emphasising trade. And in the post-Brexit world, that makes sense. You know, the UK wants to seek out trade deals with uh, as many non-European countries as it can. uh, And the Middle East does offer some opportunity to do that. That said, Middle Eastern countries generally aren't that diverse economies. So it's not like you're going to get a huge amount from Middle Eastern states and certainly nothing to rival what you got from the the European Union. But still, given these political circumstances, it does make sense to engage more with trade as and when you can. And then finally, there's the question of security. And, and at this moment in time, the security threat from the Middle East is not what it once was. You know, ISIS has been largely defeated. You know, the region is actually enjoying a relative era of calm. Uh, again, it's only relative to uh, where it once was, but still, it's relatively calm compared to the last 10 years or so. And so it makes sense that Britain is less engaged on the security front. But I think you know, Britain given the proximity of the Middle East to Europe, Britain should always be aware that um, the Middle East could present a security problem uh, at any given time. And so it needs to be able to react to that, whether it's getting involved in counter-terror organisations, whether it's responding to changes of government, uh, emerging civil wars, or emerging interstate wars that could occur. It's important that Britain keeps an eye on what is taking place there and, and is willing to get engaged if it needs to. Uh, ironically, I think this is actually an area where 
even though it has historically worked more closely with the United States, it needs to be willing to work more closely with Europe in the future, irrespective of whether it's in the EU or not. And that's because of the proximity question we saw with the migrant crisis of 2015, that actually disruption and disorder in the Middle East can really affect the political stability of Europe and by extension Britain in a way that it doesn't really affect uh, the United States because it's so far away. So were that to happen again, it's, it's plausible the United States was, would not get involved in something like that, but Europe and Britain would need to. And so it's very important to recognise that you know, that will be an area of, of possible collaboration the UK needs to have with Europe, uh, where there to be further instability and security threats in the Middle East in the future. So the other side of that coin is, does the region, does the Middle East and North Africa need the UK? Great question. And, and the short answer is not really, no. Um, you know, and I think that's very important that, that Britain recognises that, that I think a lot of British policymakers, whether it's the politicians or sort of the senior heads in, in the Foreign Office and elsewhere, are still a little bit trapped from a mentality of 20 or 30 years ago when there was a, a, a lot of deference from some Middle Eastern leaders to Britain, you know, sort of a kind of a hangover from the imperial past where they thought that Britain was this kind of important country that had a lot to offer in terms of skills to be taught, you know, perhaps security protection to offer. That's largely gone in most cases. There are a few exceptions that I'll talk about in a moment. But in most cases, you have a younger generation of leaders coming to power in the Middle East, people like Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, uh, Mohammed bin Zayed in, uh, in the UAE. Obviously, people that are younger but have been in power for a long time, like Bashar al-Assad in Syria or King Abdullah II in Jordan, who haven't been brought up in that kind of environment and don't look at Britain in that way at all. And in many ways, they have a far more transactional view of external powers. Given that you have Russia and China offering to be more involved in the region, whether it be commercially or militarily, a lot of these states are now looking at Britain with no special affection or anything like that, but just saying, okay, you know, we have certain needs, whether they're trade or security needs, and we're going to shop around and see who best satisfies those needs. Britain's historical allies, I'm not talking about radical departures and ignoring the Western alliance and and suddenly becoming very close to China and Russia at the expense of their relationship with the US and, and Britain, but they're not taking the same attitude they used to do, which was, this is the cornerstone of our foreign policy. Now they're saying, okay, actually, we are going to be more more diverse in our relationships, uh, and that's going to allow us to be tougher with Western allies, whether it's Britain or America. And you've seen this quite recently, you know, the the attitude to the the, the Ukraine crisis. Um, The UAE, Saudi Arabia uh, have led Middle Eastern countries in not joining the sanctions on Russia and saying, you know, despite pleas from Western governments, they have said, no, actually, this isn't it. This isn't our interest and you can't make us do it. And that's a sign of how things have changed. So I think, you know, the mentality needs to shift on Britain's behalf. You know, this is not a region that owes us anything. I mean, if if anything, it's a region that, as I said earlier, Britain has contributed to negatively in the past. And so Britain needs to, you know, look this region more in terms of partnerships, more in terms of, you know, what can it offer? What can it persuade people? How can it make the the case that Britain should be involved in the areas that it wants to be? The two exceptions to that are Jordan and Oman. And they're countries that are relatively small, relatively weak, 
that have important relationships with the UK still. It's, they're not their only relationships. They're also very, you know, probably the relationship with the United States is, is more important than with Britain. But because of Britain's, you know, military relationship, to an extent also at a very elite level with the relationship between the monarchs and the royal families, there is a, a, a slight pedestal that these states put Britain on. I think that's something that Britain can probably make more of moving forward if it wants to still have active involvement in the Middle East. Mm. I would like to imagine, if you will, the phone rings, Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, is on the other end of the line and asks you to head up UK foreign policy in the Middle East. First day on the job, what would be your top priorities? I actually think my top priority would be to halve the number of people employed in the task force. I would, you know, I, 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 though I am someone that focuses a lot on the Middle East, uh, it's my area of interest. I've spent, you know, decades focusing on it and living there and studying it. As a British citizen, I also recognise that it is not in Britain's priority area at the moment. And there's other areas that resources need to be focused on. So I, that would be my first thing would be like actually to say, look, don't pay much attention, you know, don't pay as much attention as you have done in the past on this region. But with my smaller task force, I would say there, there are two things that Britain needs to really focus on. One is maintaining its economic ties. That is vital. That, that, that shouldn't be you know, scoffed at. I, I, I wish we weren't in this position. I wish the economy wasn't in such a bad, bad way. And I wish that uh, you know, the fallout of the EU referendum it hadn't led to quite such a severe severing of um, Britain's relationship with the EU that is actually damaging our economy. But we are in that position, and given we're in that position, it does make sense to improve trade with other parts of the world as much as possible. So I would say keep, keep doing that. But I would then make a bigger point about looking at the broader destabilizing trends in the Middle East. The Middle East is, as I said earlier, enjoying a period of calm, but there's a lot of potential um, problems on the way. Uh, you, could, you could list them. You know, you've got huge instability in Lebanon. You've got hyperinflation in Turkey and the prospect of a change of government there in 2023. You've got near paralysis of Iraq. Uh, you've got the continued civil war in Syria that has not finished, you know, that is still you know, seeing political instability and the potential of, of uh, conflict firing back up. Likewise, you've got you know, the ongoing occupation of the West Bank by Israel and the tensions there. You've got the, the potential collapse of, of Egypt, given you know, it living under an autocratic government that is still not fulfilling the needs of the protesters that took to the street in 2011 and overthrew the last regime. Now, any one of those situations could lead to a, a quite serious situation that affects the security of Europe, like, you know, whether it's the spread of migrants, whether it's the rise of, uh, you know, an another civil war, whether it's a uh, rise of uh, jihadist organizations again, like ISIS, taking advantage of the chaos. You know, all of these could be coming down the line in any one of those states. Uh, you know, the UK needs to just be very aware and make sure that it, you know, make sure of two things. Firstly, that it's, intelligence and understanding of the region is as strong on firm footing and actually based on discussions with people inside the region rather than just outsiders and secondly it needs to ensure that the allies that it has in the region are effectively on the same page as the uk or or, or pursuing the interest of stability rather than their, their short-term interests which has again frequently been a problem do you get the impression that you say you know a smaller team maintaining 
economic ties and then a litany of, of upcoming potential problems. Do you think this government is aware? Do you think it, it's thinking on the same lines as you? Or No, not at all. No, I don't think they're interested in that at all, to be honest. I think that, I think that in the Foreign Office and Britain's think tanks and you know, people that watch the Middle East are aware of this. They will be writing reports saying, you know, what, what's going on here is you're potentially worrying, you know, just keep an eye on it. But the political class are distracted and, and it's understandable that they're distracted. There's not necessarily a criticism of them. It's just a recognition of reality, which is that domestic politics, and if we count Brexit as domestic politics, has been a huge distractor for the UK uh, for the last six years since the referendum of 2016. It has done very little internationally since 2016. And of course, the one area of, of, of international focus, let's say, other than you know the fallout of Brexit, has been the recent war in Ukraine, which is not going anywhere. That's also going to be continuing. So the bandwidth, you know, the, the you know, uh, policymakers talk about bandwidth, you know, the, the ability for politicians and policymakers to take on more than one issue at once. The bandwidth is entirely taken up by primarily domestic concerns and then, you know, uh, Ukraine and its fallout internationally. I don't think anyone's really looking at the Middle East at all. That's something that has almost always been the case. You know, the, the UK and, and Western policymakers in general have largely been reactive in the Middle East rather than proactive. You know, there, there was a lot of analysis out there throughout the 2000s that the uh, socioeconomic situation in most Arab countries was getting much worse, you know, that the autocratic bargain between leaders and populations was falling apart. Nothing was done about that until the Arab uprisings of 2011 forced it to the front of the agenda. You know, and you, you can see that elsewhere as well. Um, you can see sort of tensions in, in certain countries. Um, some I've not mentioned, you know, you look at what's going on in Sudan at the moment and the reaction against the coup there. Um, you look at, um, you know, uh, uh, tensions that are, that are taking place um, still in Algeria that, that, that again, haven't, haven't really been resolved since um, they overthrew the government uh, in 2019. You know, it, this is you know, still going on in the background, but it's just not in the priority on the priority list until uh, security is threatened, um, and, t- and until that point, I can't see a UK government engaging. Hmm. Uh, this year, the UK did reduce engagement in the Middle East and North Africa when it axed the position of Middle East and North Africa minister. Uh, held by, I think now, Foreign Secretary James Cleverly. James Cleverly, yeah. Yeah, and they also axed the Department for International Development. What impact did this have on the UK's impact in the Middle East and North Africa? And, and how might that ripple out into the future? Yeah, so I don't think we'll see it yet. So I don't think we're going to, you know, we're going to see an immediate effect right now but i think it will have a long-term effect in, in different ways if i'm being honest i'm not 100 percent sure that we needed a separate minister for the middle east and north africa i think as i said given the geopolitical situation has changed that there is no immediate security threat at the moment from the middle east and as i've argued myself i think it's not a priority at the moment the, the middle east i think it is understandable to have axed that position and i think in many ways that position is a legacy from 
years in the past, you know, the years of the Iraq war, the war on terror, the war against ISIS and so on, when the Middle East and North Africa was more on the agenda. And it's not anymore. So in some ways, that does make sense. And I don't think that's going to have a, a, a huge effect. In contrast, I actually think that axing DFID, you know, the Department for International Development, and more importantly, cutting the amount of money spent on aid from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5% of GDP will have an impact because that is exactly the kind of thing that I'm talking about in terms of the strains in different parts of the Middle East, where you know there are some societies like Lebanon, like the Palestinians, um, the, you know, like parts of Syria that are really dependent on international aid to survive. 0.2% of Britain's GDP is not a small figure. And if you look at where those cuts have come in the last two years since they were cut, you know, I think 80% of the Lebanon budget has gone. A similar amount of the Syria budget has gone. So these are, are, are people that previously were getting aid and aren't getting any more. That's going to make those situations worse. If other countries follow suit, you know, others will cut too. And, and, and that will exacerbate those trends and problems that I talked about earlier. So I think Britain, you know, can have a, you know, will have a negative effect uh, in that regard. I mean, I would actually argue, broadly speaking, limiting your engagement with the Middle East does make sense. I don't think that those cuts should fall in development. I think in many ways, development needs to be viewed through the security lens. I talked about, you know, those security, three lenses of security, um, trade and, and, and values. I think a lot of people think aid should be viewed, viewed as values, like, you know, just doing a nice thing. I, I disagree. I think aid needs to be viewed through a security lens. Societies that are struggling, where there's, you know, high unemployment, where there, there are few prospects, where education levels are low, they're the societies that are going to be attracted to radical jihadist ideologies. They're the ones that are going to more likely to rebel against uh, governments, that are more likely to lead to you know, violence and instability, you know, you need to make sure that those societies have, have more support. I mean, ideally, sort of, you know, the, the, you'd help the economies grow and, and the, the benefit, the economic benefits to filter down, you know, across society. But, it, but in the absence of that, using aid to help build infrastructure that can allow for more growth is probably a lot cheaper than the cost of, say, the anti-ISIS campaign. So it's much better to sort of, you know, uh, try to head these issues off at the root and help you know help societies develop and grow rather than waiting until you get civil war unrest revolution and violence and then having to deal with the the after effects you know of of, of those policy failures mm. pay for job opportunities now rather than bullets later absolutely absolutely and and it and job opportunities are cheaper than bullets that's the thing bullets are very expensive bombs are very expensive you know i did a, i did a quick analysis on uh, the cost to Britain of, of the Syria war. And what's really interesting is that it spent way less on aid for refugees and aid for the Syrian rebels than it did on the cost of defeating ISIS. Way less. So you can make an argument, again, it doesn't work quite that way, but you can make an argument that actually if you'd supported the, the rebels or supported the Syrian population more effectively early on, you wouldn't have got ISIS. Mm. Uh, the UK and the US have long been partners uh, in many different fields and areas. The US has in recent years been drifting away from the region. Can the UK go it alone? Or, or does it need the US by its side to be effective? Um, that is a interesting question. 
<laughs> I think it depends what the UK is trying to do. I think that on the military side, it is very difficult to see the UK engaged in the Middle East militarily without the US by its side. Um, you know, we saw in the intervention in Libya in 2011, Britain and France tried to take the lead with the US in a support role. And very quickly, they ran out of ammunition, they didn't have enough equipment, and the US had to take over. So pretty clear, you know, and this wasn't against the heavily armed military or anything like this. This was against um, Muammar Gaddafi's forces that were, you know, very limited in, you know, in scope. And even then it was clear that, you know, not just Britain, but Britain and France were not able to sort of, you know, engage militarily effectively. So I think it's very hard to see a situation where the UK would, as you say, go it alone without the United States militarily. But there are other areas, of course, that the UK can go it alone and perhaps should. You know, we mentioned them already, trade. The the US is not interested in the UK's trade. In fact, if anything, they're they're often a trade rival. Um, You know, when it comes to things like arms contracts, Britain and America are often, you know, competing with the same countries to try to get arms contracts. So um, trade is not something the UK needs to do alongside the US. Uh, Likewise, aid and development. I mean, as I just mentioned, aid is something that the US does itself, you know, with USAID. Um, But often it's directed in slightly different places to the the UK's aid budget. The British made a very big point of, uh, during the Syria war, for example, of certain areas that it was really um, wanted to focus on. William Hager's foreign secretary made a very big point about sexual assault uh, and uh, as a weapon of war. Uh, and that was something that the US supported and agreed to. But the, U- the UK was able to, to, to make that point alone and put resources itself into trying to bring attention to that. Likewise, the UK has been a very big um, supporter of Syrian refugees in the Middle East, so particularly supporting Jordan and Lebanon. Um, it's not been a very good supporter of uh, Syrian refugees coming into the UK, but it is an area of, of aid in the Middle East, at least that um, that the UK can you know has has gone alone. So it, it's about looking at the scope. I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in the political classes that don't know the Middle East very well tend to view the Middle East primarily through that security lens and think, oh, well, if we can't, you know, if the US isn't involved, then we can't get involved because they see engagement being about big military campaigns. But there's a lot of more nuanced, subtle areas that the UK can get involved with if it chooses to. I would advocate, and Mike Stevens and I advocate this in our book, a wise course of action for the UK moving forward is to focus resources in just a few areas. Rather than trying to spread yourself very thinly across the whole region, select a few issues or a few countries that are really important for whatever Britain's strategic priorities are and focus your attention there rather than do, as has been the case in the last 20 years, which is by following the United States, which has tried to engage across the whole region. The UK has only been present as a kind of voice at the table, often quite a quiet voice at the table, but actually hasn't really uh, had that effective a voice and has actually not been that effective in what it's tried to do. In essence, we, we kind of argue that the UK should be prioritising quality over quantity. It should be doing a few things really well and perhaps some areas that it used to engage with not trying to do those anymore. Recent years have seen the UK, with other countries around the world, retreat from the Middle East. Unlike the early 2000s, the region is simply not as important for the UK as it once was. But this decline in relevance for the UK has been matched by a rising independence of Middle Eastern states. Old ideas of a 
dominant West are falling away. Many of the younger generation do not want to look to old colonial masters for assistance, but rather forge a path for themselves. The wheel of history suggests that the UK will seek greater engagement with the Middle East and North Africa in the future, but when they do, it will almost certainly be on different and unfamiliar terms. What's next for Britain in the Middle East, edited by our guests this week, Christopher Phillips and Michael Stevens, is available now. You can find the link to it in our show notes. That's all for this week. The new Arab voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The new Arab voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. (laughs) 